Welcome, welcome. Good to be with you. I am Pastor Tim. Thanks for worshiping with us. We're going to dive back in this morning into our series on healthy relationships. Some of you know uh, my good friend Will. We went to college together, one of my oldest, dearest friends. Um, Will and I are very similar in nearly every way. Um, He's actually probably more outgoing, more gregarious, and louder than I am. Uh, uh, So he tends to overshadow me when we're in a room together. So that's that's saying something, I, I think. Uh, But we have one major difference despite all of our many similarities. Um, He is a complete and total idealist, and I am much more of a pragmatist. And and that can be a source of great conflict. It has been a source of great conflict over the 30 or so years that we've known each other. It's led to a lot of disagreements about theology and politics and parenting and church life and Terp sports where we we went at College Park. And our wives tell us, they, they agree, that when... Will and I are together, we tend to argue like an old married couple. And not something I'm proud of, but it's an observation that's been made more than once. I thought of a particular instance years ago. We were on vacation together with our families. Uh, big, both have big families, four kids, and we were in the Smoky Mountains in a large lodge. And it's hard, honestly, it's hard to be on vacation together uh, with, with family, with friends, even people you're close to living day to day. And it can be stressful. And on the last day, we were kind of taking it easy, decided to relax at the cabin, and, and Will and I were going to take the kids swimming, and it was, it was in the complex sort of where our lodge was, but we were going to hop in the van and drive like three minutes or something. Um, and my recollection was this. I started the van. We were taking our van. Everybody else loaded up, and I was probably, you know, getting things together or whatever. And when I got into the van, Will was already sitting in the passenger seat, and, and the air conditioning was running. I did not know that he had turned on the air conditioning, but I immediately got into the car and put it in a drive, and I, and I turned off the AC and rolled down the windows, right, because it's like a three-minute drive, no reason to, to turn on the AC, um, and, and, you know, my philosophy is, like, you want to get as hot as possible before you go swimming, right? Like, you, you want to sweat so that you have a reason to, to jump into the pool. Well, Will got irritated. He got annoyed with me. And, and he was like, what are, you, what are you doing? Why did you turn off the AC? And it basically, it started this stupid, petty squabble between the two of us about whether or not the air conditioning should have been on for the three-minute drive to go to the pool. And we bickered with one another. And there were two layers, right, to the argument. One was, you know, the, the, the rationale, whether or not you should have the air conditioning on for a three-minute drive to the pool or whether the window should be down, which is the right way to think about it, so that you get as hot as possible, right? But the second layer to the argument was it was my car, and I was driving, right? Your car, your rules, right? And so it seemed to make sense to me. But we sat there in the car. The kids got out and swam. I don't even know that we ever made it to the pool because we just sat there bickering and arguing, right, getting more and more irritated. And all the stress and the frustration of every minor decision and tweak and irritation throughout the week kind of came out in this argument. We eventually later, at the end of the night, were able to kind of calm down and come back, and we apologized, and we worked it out. I don't think we ever agreed upon who, who was right, but... We were able to find some degree of of reconciliation. Listen, even with your closest friends, even with your spouse, even with your children and your parents, disagreements are bound to happen. Why? Because people are different. People look at things differently. The same situation could make the most sense in the world to you. Somebody else is going to see it different. Their personality, their perspective, their convictions are going to be different than than your own. Differences often lead to disagreements, right? But disagreements don't have to be a bad thing. Disagreements doesn't have to mean conflict and fighting. In fact, differences can be incredibly helpful. They can help make two friends or two siblings or or a married couple stronger and better because of those differences. We have to value and understand and appreciate 
those differences. There, there's this uh, couple who've written a bunch of books. They're counselors, Les and Leslie Parrott. They have this book called Love Talk. And in it, they discuss some of the differences, particularly as it relates to, to communication and, and at times conflict. When, you, when it comes to tackling problems, spouses, you can think this way, siblings, good friends, one of you may tackle problems sort of aggressively, meet it head on, not aggressive as in like you're, you know, aggressive, but, you know, facing it head on. Others tend to be more passive or more reflexive. How do you influence others when there is a difference of agreement? Some tend to, tend to focus on feelings while others focus on facts. Some of you are already putting you and your spouse into a certain category, right? How about how do you react to change? When change happens, however big or small, some are resistant and, and don't want that change. They see it as a bad thing. O- others jump in and accept it. How about how do you approach decisions? A married couple, business partnership, two friends on vacation together. Some tend to be more cautious, right? When deciding, thinking through things, others tend to be spontaneous. Great idea. Let's do it. You know, we'll figure out the, the details after we're done, right? And those kind of differences, those different approaches can create tension, conflict, even at times disagreement. I think part of what we're called to is to appreciate one another's differences so that we can disagree respectfully as you value the other person, as you see how the other person may be different from you, but their differences can actually complement, be a blessing to you, right? My wife and I are about as different as two people can be in most ways, and yet I believe and hope and pray that for 23 years it's made us together stronger. But when that doesn't happen, disagreements can quickly turn ugly. You can find yourself in the midst of angry arguing, tense conflict, awkward silence, rude disagreements. But the Scriptures call us to healthy relationships, and that means healthy conflict. And there is a way, by God's grace, through His Word, that we can disagree respectfully in a way that honors Christ in the way that serves and loves the other person. And that's what we're going to see this morning in James chapter 3 and a little bit of chapter 4. This idea of disagreeing respectfully with a Christ-centered, humble, loving attitude, it builds off of all that we've learned in our series that, that to have healthy relationships means that we need to honor other people, we need to walk in humility, we need to seek to build others up. As we've said, there's always going to be disagreements with spouses and family and friends and co-workers, that's just a part of life. But our desire is that disagreements would actually be healthy and productive, And yes, this is going to happen even in the church. We see this in the very early church. Sometimes people look back to the book of Acts like it was the glory days when everything was was wonderful and perfect and somehow we just need to get back there. No, we're not trying to get back to the book of Acts. We're trying to grow on more and more into maturity, right? Acts chapter 15, um, Paul and and, and Barnabas disagreed. They had a disagreement. There was this guy named John Mark had gone on one of their early missionary journeys, but John Mark had left them in the middle of the journey. And so we read there that, that this caused a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other because they could not decide whether or not to take John Mark. And so they disagreed and they separated and went their separate ways. Now we can hope and pray and that, that they disagreed respectfully, but but there was a disagreement nonetheless, and it caused them to go in, in different directions. We're going to see this morning that in the book of James that I think there's a few different things. The first thing you can see, if you see the outline in your bulletin, we're going to see that to disagree respectfully, we've got to tame our tongue. We'll look at the second section about overcoming selfish ambition, and then finally we'll look real briefly at this section in chapter 4 about defeating our passions. Three areas that by God's grace we need to grow in if we're going to disagree respectfully and facilitate healthy relationships so 
I've prayed already. I'm going to dive in and read the first 12 verses of James chapter 3. Hear the word of God. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we, that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth comes blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things are not to be so. Does the spring pour pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Lord, guide our time. Be with us. Verse 1 gives this quick note. Don't take the responsibility of teaching other people lightly because those who teach will be judged with more strictness, not only for what they say, but how what they say impacts others. And verse 2 says, look, everybody's going to stumble in life. Everybody's going to stumble in what you do, what you think, but one of the biggest offenders is what we say. As we saw last week when we looked at this idea in Ephesians of building others up, how you use your tongue has huge implications. Words matter. Words carry weight. Words impact the people around you, right? I mentioned a bunch of those phrases from moms last week. This isn't a mom phrase, but sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never what? Is that true? No, it's not true at all. Some of you have scars and wounds of words that were said to you decades ago. I remember remember this uh, instance where where words impacted my my oldest son, Simon. He was uh, finishing up a soccer game, a game they had lost pretty badly, if I remember, and he was walking over to the sidelines with his head hung low, and he was not typically somebody that would have been that impacted by losing a soccer game, and so I said, you know, what happened? He said, well, the coach really laid into us and yelled at us and told us how terrible we were, and I'll never forget this phrase. He said that he had seen three-day drunks play better than we played today, and it just impacted his whole countenance. Now, needless to say, I called the coach, and we had a slight disagreement that afternoon about the way that he... he, uh, he carried out his post-game talk, which, by the way, he actually did apologize and, 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 and changed his attitude. But, but words matter, right? Words can ruin someone's countenance. If someone doesn't stumble, verse 2 says in what he says, he must be a perfect person because if you never grumble under your breath, if you never call someone a name, if you never lash out in anger, you must be perfect. If you're not going to sin with your words, you're probably not sinning at all. If you can keep your tongue under control, it's a good indication you probably can keep your whole body under control. Now, you might pause for a moment and think, wait a minute, why does this passage give so much emphasis on the tongue, right? Like, isn't God concerned with our hearts? Why are words matter so much? Because, listen, words are a reflection of your character. 
your tongue is like a flag telling you what direction your heart is going. And it's not that control of the tongue leads to control of the whole body. It's that control of the tongue indicates that you're someone who has control of your inner self. Now, of course, you can fake it, and plenty of people do. But eventually, if there's filth on the inside, sooner or later that filth is going to spill out of your mouth. As one commentator put it, a person's speech is like a barometer of their spirituality. Isn't that true? Some, some of us don't want to admit that that's true. The passage goes on to give two analogies to help flesh this out. Verse 3 says, think about a large, powerful horse. You find a horse in the wild, right? There's no way you're just going to walk up and jump on the thing. You have to train a horse. You have to put a bit in the back of its mouth, that piece of metal along the back. You have to hook up the bridle, those straps, and you have to teach it how the, the pulling on the bit one way or the other way will train and direct it. Um, I've ridden horses a few times, and some of them, Isaac was already mentioned, but w- with Isaac, you know, and, and I, I'm on there, I'm like all over the place, no idea what I'm doing. You, you look at, I, I mean, Isaac literally just looks like he's just sitting there doing nothing. His hands are down here, right? Just a tiny little tug, one way or another, can control that massive animal. Just, just from how you adjust the bit in the bridle. Or think about a large ship, right? Ships can be hundreds of feet long, and, and the rudder is, is a mere fraction of the overall size of the ship. And, and ships travel through powerful seas and winds blowing against them. But in the midst of all of that, that little rudder at the stern of the ship can direct the entire course wherever the pilot decides to go. And a slight adjustment can change course for miles. And so 5 says, look, just like a bit, just like a rudder, the tongue, yes, it's a small part of the body, but it has the power to do great things. There's much to boast about. And words have power. They have power in our relationships. And, and this especially comes out when you don't see eye to eye with someone, right? And especially if it's, it's a disagreement about something important. How are you going to handle that disagreement? How are you going to use your words? Look, you can put a bit into a horse's mouth and use it to raid a camp or use it to deliver essential mail. The rudder of a ship can, can be used to bring war to a country or used to, to bring a floating hospital to a country, right? Words can be used for, for, to tear someone down or to build them up. A parent can tell a child, I'm proud of you, or a parent can tell a child, you're a failure. And those words can change the trajectory of that child's life. Like a bit in a rudder, the tongue sets the course for our lives. What you say impacts who you are, people's perception of you. The power that you have in your tongue in, it can impact the nature of your relationships, your marriage, your friendships, how you're used by God. Now listen, the bit does not decide where the horse goes. The rudder does not decide where the chi- ship goes. It's the rider, it's the pilot we learn there in the passage that control the ship. Your tongue is decided by you. What you say, what words your tongue forms is decided by who you are by what your heart is. Your heart turns your tongue, and your tongue, in essence, sets the course for your life. But we have a problem. The Scripture goes on to say that our problem is that the tongue is wild. It's untamable. And that is a challenge when we think about how important our tongues are in our relationships. Verse 5 says it's like a fire, right? A tongue can easily lead to chaos, devastation, that cannot be controlled. You think about like a forest fire out west when it's dry, right? Just one little flick of a cigarette or one match misplaced can set ablaze hundreds of thousands of acres that cannot be controlled. And so verse 6 says, the tongue is powerful, it's dangerous. If it's not 
properly controlled, it's capable of a world of pain and evil. Now, our tongue is, is just a small part of us, but what, what it does can set the course for your whole life, setting your life on fire. As it says in verse 6, it can bring destruction and devastation. It's a fire that ultimately has been set by hell itself, by the devil himself, reaping destruction through our sin, through our own mishandling of of our hearts and, and of our words. Now, it's a pretty dark picture, right? Like, all right, James, thanks for the encouragement. Verse 7 says, look, humans have dominion over virtually every area of creation. We've learned to tame every kind of animal. Birds can be tamed to, to deliver messages. Tigers can be taught to perform trips. Reptiles can, can be kept in your house. Even fish can be domesticated and taught to eat out of your hand. But no human being, nobody's figured out how to tame the tongue, how to control their language. It is a restless, unruly evil full of deadly poison, it says. Now, what's particularly dangerous is that that poison of the tongue, it, it, it does poison your own heart, but more tragically, the harsh, foul words that come out of you are like an injection of poison into your loved ones. You know, if I come home and I'm in an irrit- irritable mood and my kids maybe just ask a, a, a very innocent question, call to me from the other room or, or come in asking me something and maybe it's something I feel like they should know or we've talked about it, all I have to do, if I just turn and say, what? You know what will happen? You, you know, their eyes drop, their heads drop. Oftentimes they say, never mind, and they just walk out like this. And I can ruin their entire night with one word, just the tone, not, not a curse word, just the tone in which I say the word what. It's uncontrollable, that wicked poison. We can look at the, the sins of our tongue like this saying the wrong things in the wrong way at the wrong time to the wrong person, right? You say things that are wrong, that's, that's called lying. That's called falsehood. That's called obscene or, or explicit language. You can say things that are not necessarily the wrong things. You can just say them in the wrong way, like the example I just gave, where your words are harsh or angry or critical or flippant. You can say them at the wrong time. Sometimes you can say the the exact right thing in the exact right way, but you're just being insensitive and you're speaking to the person in the, when they're not ready. And you're saying it at the wrong time. Sometimes it's just to the wrong person. That, that means you're gossiping, you're spreading rumors. You, shouldn't, you, you maybe should talk about that, just not to somebody who's not involved. Maybe you need to go to the person who is involved. And so the untamed tongue needs to a variety of, of devastating sins, blasphemy, which means slandering God, disrespecting God, deceit, gossip, as I said, spreading rumors, slandering somebody else. But you can belittle other people with your negative, critical, condescending tone, obscene talk. There are, is foul language that's offensive, crude joking, anger, angry words that, that are loud and harsh and negative. This poison is, spreads faster and is harder to stop than a forest fire. And when there's a disagreement... Our words have even heightened impact. Proverbs 18.21 says that death and life are in the power of the tongue. Now look, verse 9 in the scripture we read says that on the one hand, we use our mouths to bless and worship the Lord Jesus, our Heavenly Father, and our Heavenly Father, and yet, and yet with our mouths we also tear other people down. We curse the people who are made in the image of God. 
And so we're erratic. We're inconsistent with our words. And somehow we rationalize it and think we can come here on Sunday and offer words of praise and then use our tongues for foul purposes. And so verses 10 to 12, 12 say, look, how can both blessing and cursing come out of the same mouth? That would be as absurd as a spring producing fresh water and stale salty water or a tree growing figs and olives, verses 10, 11, and 12 say. So what are we to do? What are we to do with this, with this admittedly dark, discouraging picture? How are we to handle ourselves in difficult relationships or when there are tense disagreements? Maybe you just bite your tongue, right? Like figuratively, but maybe just literally. Just bite your tongue and don't say anything. Does that work? Can you just hold it in? Look, listen, at the end of the day, if there are horrible things in your heart, even if you don't say them, is that really better? Now, eventually you probably will say them, but even if you don't, is the state of your heart really any better? The verse 10 gives us a little glimmer of hope in verse 10. It basically says, look, it shouldn't be this way. And by God's grace, it doesn't have to be. Now, verses 7 and 8 say that no human can tame the tongue, but I think that's given us a little indication of hope. I think James is cracking the door to a light at the end of the tunnel. No human can tame the tongue. So guess what? If we are, if we are serious about overcoming the predicament that we're in, we're going to need someone other than a human being to rescue us to tame what we otherwise cannot tame ourselves. And so we look outside of humanity, Jesus, who was, yes, fully human, but also fully God. He is the only one that can overcome the rottenness of our own heart. Because as we've said, the problem with our tongues begins with our heart. And so Jesus said this to the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 12. He said, out of the abundance of the, of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned. And so we, we cry out to God, for, just as we do for every other area of weakness and brokenness and sin in our lives. God, heal. God, transform my heart. Have mercy. And we thank God for his mercy. Not only a mercy that saves us, but a mercy that transforms us now, that empowers us to be men or women who speak blessing, who use our words to bring life to others. And just as God spoke creation into existence with the very words of his mouth, he brought about creation. By his very words, he now speaks life into our hearts and speaks words of forgiveness to you today, speaks words into your heart of restoration, of reconciliation, that you are loved by me, the Father says. I've loved you. I've adopted you. Your, your sins and your, and your despicable words that you're ashamed of have, have been canceled out through Christ on the cross. Jesus died and he rose again because of our hearts, because of our words. And so now the tongue can be tamed, not because we're doing better, but because Christ had the victory. And so God speaks his words of salvation into our heart and his Holy Spirit transforms our hearts. And now we can use the power of the tongue for his purposes. Now we can use the power of the tongue to bless and serve and give good to others. And in the midst of your brokenness, in the midst of, of some of you today that are thinking through what you said to your spouse or your children on the way to church today, accept what Christ has done. Be free, be clean, and cry out to the Holy Spirit to speak truth, to speak hope, to speak the same words of grace that God has spoken to you. And so in a few moments with that hope, at the conclusion of our service, we're going to come to the Lord's table today and receive those elements and remind ourselves who our hope is, remind ourselves how it is that we can walk and live, how we can have healthy relationships, how we can disagree respectfully. 
So first, we, we ask for God's grace to tame our tongue. Secondly, look at verse 13 with me, and, and we're going to look at this section about overcoming selfish ambition. James 3.13 says this, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So we've got two kinds of of wisdom, two ways we can live life and relate with others, wisdom from above and earthly wisdom. What is this heavenly wisdom? Heavenly wisdom in in the scriptures and in James is not just head knowledge, it's not just the ability to give good advice, it means living it out. It means a wise life, walking in obedience and faithfulness and integrity. Wisdom is walking in maturity and discerning right and wrong, what is godly, what is foolish. Wisdom is gained over time. As you experience the trials and hardships of life, as you experience the strain of difficult relationships, wisdom is having the insight to know how to speak and how to think and how to make decisions, how to relate with people, how to adjust to circumstances, how to act in life in such a way that you and those around you grow in godliness, in blessing, in fulfillment, and in success. Wisdom ultimately is living life as it was meant to be lived. And so 13 says that those who are wise, they show their wisdom. They show their wisdom with good behavior, with wise works that are done in in meekness. Meekness means gentleness and humility. Meekness, we sometimes think, means being weak or or passive. No, it's not that, that. It's strength under control. It's a deliberate acceptance of God and his will. Jesus said, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. This is wisdom from above, and James tells us in in chapter 1, verse 5, he said, If any of you lacks wisdom, ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. So if you're reading this section of the passage, you're thinking, well, this isn't me. The Bible says, ask God. Ask God for this type of of wise life. But there's another way to live, another way to relate with people around you, 14 and 15 say. It's, It's earthly wisdom, and it's described there as bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. It's a life that's filled with arrogance that denies the truth of your own faults and failures. Listen, bitter jealousy is this. It's a selfish attitude about the good things that someone else has because you think you deserve them more. And and, and bitterness, this bitter jealousy becomes a nasty, vicious attitude. But it's also described there as selfish ambition. Now, in the Greek, another way to translate that word is rivalry. Selfish ambition is like a rivalry, right? So you think of some of the great sports rivalries of the time, which are similar to what can happen in an interpersonal relationship, right? You think about Maryland versus Duke, Ravens versus Steelers, Lakers versus Celtics. In a sports rivalry, what happens? At the end of every game, with the exception of football, which has a weird tie rule, there's a winner and there's a loser, right? You don't go into a rivalry thinking, well, hopefully it'll work out so that we both just come out on top. 
No, you specifically want your team to, to win and the other team to lose. And selfish ambition does that in a relationship. It's a self-centered sense of, of, of rivalry bent on doing whatever it takes to gain advantage over the other person to achieve prestige. It's an attitude that compels you to push other people down so that you can be lifted up. That's what selfish ambition does in a relationship. Verse 15 says this kind of attitude and behavior is not the wisdom that comes from above. It's earthly. It's unspiritual. Ultimately, it's based on the perspective of the natural fallen world. Ultimately, it's unspiritual and it's demonic from the devil himself. And so 16 says that, look, anytime you find jealousy and selfish ambition, there's going to be disorder and confusion and a chaotic frenzy of fighting a battle for control and every other vile, wicked practice that you can imagine. And friends, you can see this in the church, in your family, in your company. The fight to get ahead is ultimately what destroys relationships. What is your strategy? What is your strategy when there's differences and disagreements? Negotiators will tell you if you're negotiating a conflict, there can be a a win-lose solution, right? A lose-lose solution or a win-win solution. So you think about differences and disagreements you may have in your marriage or in a friendship or in a partnership. If rivalry takes over, you'll be looking to win, which means you are looking for the other person to lose. And so the, heat, the key to healthy conflict is to avoid rivalry, to avoid this kind of competition, and to look for the win-win solution, right? And again, I, I direct you to Lesson and Leslie Parrott. They've got another book, lots of wisdom, called The Good Fight. And in the good fight, they talk about the core of a good fight, right? There is such a thing as healthy conflict. The core of a good fight is, is one, cooperation. That means working with the other person, not against them. You are for the other person. It's not a me versus you. It's a us working together. I want to encourage you, husbands and wives, in the midst of your disagreement, specifically say we, not you or not me. Say we to one another because you're not fighting against them, you're engaged with them. We're talking about cooperation, not competition. Secondly is ownership. Listen, in any disagreement, your initial reaction should not be to blame the other person. Take ownership of your role in the conflict. And you may believe in your heart of hearts, but they're 90% wrong. Okay. Take that 10%. Own it. Own it. Believe it. Confess it. And act upon it as though that 10% has the ability to transform the relationship. Because you know what? In many cases, it will. And so you own your role. You ask for forgiveness and you seek to change. Respect. Nothing will derail an argument quicker than disrespect. Disrespect can look like an arrogant attitude, a belittling tone, demeaning words, assuming the worst about somebody, contempt, bitterness. And as we've learned in our Healthy Relationship series, healthy conflict must be built upon love and honor and humility and respect. And you might think the other person is dead wrong. Nobody in the existence of humanity has ever been wronger than your spouse is in that moment. Guess what? Still respect them. And fourthly, empathy. You might think you're right. You might know you're right. But here's what I would say. Have you, ever, have you actually stopped and tried to truly look at things from the other person's perspective? Sympathy and compassion for what they are going through. You might think they're wrong. You might think they're, they're out of their mind. But before you jump to conclusions, before you make a definitive statement or accuse them, you have to understand what they are saying and why they are saying it. It's the only way you can facilitate healthy conflict and reconciliation. And so, the beautiful picture of, of the wise life 
is not selfish ambition, but 17 gives us this beautiful picture of wisdom from above. That even in the midst of, of disagreement and conflict and tension, we see these eight attributes. The first of them was mentioned in verse 13. It's meekness. It means you're gentle and humble. Secondly, it says you're, you're pure. It means you're untainted, uncontaminated by the world. Thirdly, peaceable. It means you love peace and you're eager to keep peace. Fourth is gentle. It means you're, you're kind. You yield yourself. You're courteous and tolerant of others. Fifth means you're a person who's open to reason. You're not stuck in your own way of thinking but you're listening and submissive to the people around you. Six is full of mercy and good fruit. That means you're compassionate, ready to care for those who are hurting, filled with the godly fruits of the Spirit. Seven is impartial. Impartial, you know the truth, the truth of God. You know the right way of God, and you're not swayed. You're not, you're not unwavering from, from grounding in the truth. And eight is sincere. That means you're, you're genuine. You don't have a pretense. You're not a hypocrite. And think about the men and the women who've been walking with the Lord long enough to display these qualities. I couldn't help but think of our dear, dear brother, Tim Keller. Many of you have read Tim Keller's books and listened to his, his sermons and have been impacted by Tim Keller as I, uh, as I have been. Tim Keller died this week after a, a battle of cancer. He's a pastor, theologian, author, co-founder of the Gospel Coalition, which we love, uh, founder of the City to City Church Planning Network, but he was a father and he was a husband. I never saw him in his home, but at least publicly, I feel like Tim Keller was a man that embodied these attributes. He, maybe he had a harsh side, but he certainly never showed it. And, and here's a guy who was preached at conferences across the nation, was interviewed by major news media sources who were looking to make him look bad. Most notably, when he planted his church in Manhattan in the 90s, he was planting his church among skeptics and cynics, and he would invite them up after his sermons and have a Q&A right, with people who violently disagreed with him. But he always, at least every instance that I know of, was a man who remained calm, who was respectfully engaging with the people, even people that he radically disagreed with, he was able to live out this wisdom from above. This is the wise life. And so we can walk in selfish ambition, but that will lead to disorder and destruction. Or we can walk with the wisdom from above in, in godly humility, and peace and blessing. See, we see a lot of overlap here with the fruits of the Spirit because this wise life grows out of the Spirit of God. And so to have healthy relationships to facilitate peace, to disrespect without, or excuse me, to, to disagree without disrespecting or yelling or selfishly arguing or having tense conflict or awkward silence in your marriage and friendships and your partnerships and business relationships, we need, to, we need to seek peace. Verse 18 says, a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who cultivate peace. Listen, if you sow selfish ambition into your relationships, you'll cultivate disorder, strife, and disunity every single time. But if you sow the seeds in your relationships of humility and gentleness and mercy, you will cultivate peace and humility and blessing and reap a harvest of righteousness. And we'll be empowered to live out, as we saw last week in Philippians 2, or two weeks ago. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant of yourselves. It goes on to say there, have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. Friends, again, we come back to Christ. That we need Him to empower, to motivate, to lead the way, and to fill us with His Spirit, with this attitude, with this heart. That Christian, we can walk in the shoes of Jesus. Walk with the heart of Jesus. Walk with the words of Jesus. 
And so we disagree respectfully as we tame our tongue, as we overcome selfish ambition. And I just want to look, we're going to do this briefly, I promise, the first three verses of chapter 4 and what it means to transform your passion. Look, look, at, look at what the Word of God says here. It's so relevant to what we're talking about in James 4. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. He's really getting to the heart of the matter, right? You want to know what causes fighting and quarreling among you, in your family, in, in the church, in the community? It's not that people are different. It's not that nobody likes you. It's not that, that, that nobody will listen to you. It's this. It's that your passions are waging war in your own heart. And this word passion here is the indication of a desire for pleasure. It's our sinful passions that are battling our passion for God. Our desire for the comforts of the world are battling against our desire for God and His kingdom. And, and the selfish, worldly, superficial urges that we have, they take over and they lead us to mistreat other people. And I think the biggest passion that can ruin relationships is our desire for comfort. When I look at the arguments that I've had with my wife, the times I've mistreated my children, the conflict that I've had, it's often because I want to be comfortable and you are stopping me from being comfortable, right? Whether it's spending the time that I want to spend, getting the way that I want to have, that, that desire for, for comfort. Verse 2 gives these two somewhat harsh examples of murder and coveting, right? But, but you covet when you, have some, when you don't have something in the world that, that you want that consumes you. And eventually, in the worst case scenario, it leads to murder, right? Murder is often because of revenge or greed or lust or pride, but ultimately it's just coveting something that you don't have. And so you're going to do anything that you can to get it from the other person because you think that, that they're taking it from you. And you know what? If you can't get it from them, you're going to try to make them feel bad because at least maybe you will feel better about yourself. What, it, what is your attitude towards people who have the vacations that you want, the house you want, the family you want, the position at work you want? Now, hopefully none of us have physically murdered somebody, but Jesus said that if you lash out in anger... If you use angry words towards other, you're guilty of, of murdering that person in your heart. Some of us have even said, I, I wish they were dead. We've said that in the quiet of our own heart. But that, that passion for pleasure, for comfort, leads us to crave, to hurt, to hate, to mistreat the people around us, to push and pull and step on and take and argue. And the misplaced desires for the passions of the world is what causes so much tension and pain. And verse 2 says, you're going through all this selfish, hurtful, destructive behavior, but ultimately you, you don't have what you long for because you never bother to ask. Again, in, in the book of James, chapter 1, verse 17, says that every good gift and every perfect gift, it comes from above. Anything that you truly want worth having is only going to come from God, the Father of lights. Now listen, this doesn't mean that if you're coveting something and it's causing an argument that stop fighting and just pray and God will immediately give you whatever you want and the argument will stop. No, it means that as you take your desires and your pleasures and your frustrations to God, He transforms your hearts and He changes what you ask for and changes what you receive. And we need, we need the right motives as well because verse 3 says often we ask for the right things but even then we don't have the right motives. Even when we want good Things, our flesh creeps in. 
and we don't want them to honor God. We want peace in our marriage not to honor God, not to bless other people, but just because we, we want life to be easier. As it says, to spend on your passions and pleasures. But when we truly take a request to God, when we truly humble ourselves before him, trusting in the work of Christ, believing that he is the father of lights who gives all good gifts, then he purifies our desires. And we can read and pray with comfort the words of Psalm 37.4. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Friends, listen, when our delight is in him, not in the things of the world, when our delight is in him and he purifies our motives and we have the mind and the heart of Christ, the desires that we long for are ours. See, our problem is that our passions and our desires are, are on the wrong things. It's not wrong to be passionate. It's not wrong to desire pleasure or comfort. But when we put them in the things of the world, it brings external conflict and internal turmoil. And so what we need is passion for different things, ultimately passion for God himself. Pleasure in the Lord, looking to the Lord. And so sinful passions are defeated as we look to Christ as Savior. Godly passions are stirred up and raised up in us as we look to Christ. And so we're going to do that now and turn to the table.